Well, thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. It is actually very, very special that every time I've gotten to preach on a Sunday morning, my mom has actually gotten to read Scripture that morning, which is really, really fun. Uh, But good morning, Providence Church. I'm excited to be with you this morning. My name is Andrew McGill, but you can just call me McGill. Because uh, there's already an Andrew on staff. And I get the privilege of working uh, with PC3, which is our college ministry here. And I wanted to quickly just thank you all. Um, as a church, you guys have been such an incredible church family welcoming in these college students. Uh, currently, college students are, and college campuses are on a trend that is seeing more and more college students disengaged from the local church. And I truly do thank God for this church family because you all are so welcoming to these college students. And what's really fun is most of these students, this is their first church experience. And so if you see a college student around this morning, please make it a point to help them feel welcomed. They might be gone because it's spring break right now, but if you see one, please go out of your way to make them feel welcomed. But this morning, uh, we're going to bite off a little more text than we are kind of used to in the book of Ephesians. Um, Last week, Kent preached verse 10, and he really honed in on the individual work of God's redemption in our lives. And if you remember, Kent built out this imagery, this beautiful picture of us being God's masterpiece. Well, this morning, the book of Ephesians is going to zoom out a little bit and show how these individual masterpieces actually come together like puzzle pieces to make a bigger picture. And the bigger picture that God is creating is that those who don't belong in the family of God have been brought in by the blood of Christ. The bigger picture that God is creating is that those who don't belong have been brought in to the family of God by the blood of Christ. And so here's what's at stake this morning if we miss this. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no hope of making or having peace with God. And so if we miss this, then we will settle for some sort of counterfeit form of peace that will not save us, and it will not last. The only peace that will save us and last is the precious blood of Jesus. In Providence, not only are we Gentiles, but we're also sinners. Our text talks to these Gentiles, and we are those Gentiles, but we're also sinners. In the past few weeks, we've gotten to look at the dire consequences of our sin. It has made us enemies of God. If you have sinned, then you are an enemy of God, which means there is no peace with God. And if there's no peace with God, what hope is there for us? Furthermore, we cannot make peace with God because we are the offenders. We can't negotiate peace with God. It cannot come from us. But here's the good news. This morning, our passage shares with us this great news that God has brought peace to us. We who were once enemies of God can now have peace because of Jesus. So if you are not in Christ this morning, then you do not have peace with God. And that's what's at stake this morning. But if you are in Christ, then you have peace with God. 
from our text this morning, my main idea that I'm, I want to try and communicate this morning is we are all equally in need of peace with God, and it can only happen when we are made one in Christ. So let me repeat that. We are all equally in need of peace with God, and that can only happen when we are made one with Christ. So this morning, we have two things we're going to look at. The first is equal, not neutral. The second thing we're going to look at, oh, sorry, I've got a whole bunch of numbers right in here because my second point is one, not two, and so I was reading one, not two going, what on earth did I write there? Yeah, so (laughs) point one is equal, not neutral. Point two is one, not two. Are you tracking with me or is that confusing? One, not two, is point two. Yeah. Let me pray, and then let's get into it, because it'll be made clear once we get into the text. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, and thank you that uh, you are in control of all things. And Lord, we we pray for those in Nebraska who are affected by the floods, um, that can't gather at a church this Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, would you shine through in the midst of their tragedy and, and show them that you are still sovereign? Uh, would they feel the love and support of uh, particularly Christians across the state reaching out to them and, and um, bringing them comfort? And Lord, this morning, would you impact our hearts to help us uh, see that you have brought us into your family when we did not deserve it, and you have made us one. And Lord, help us live that out in tangible ways uh, as the church. So Lord, be with us this morning, and we lift this up to you. Amen. So let's read verses 11 and 12. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the the reason our first point is equal, not neutral, is because Paul reminds us of our condition apart from Christ. He essentially is saying we are equally hostile enemies of God, not neutral bystanders in need of help. In verses 1 through 10, Paul lays the foundations for the gospel, and in those verses we get to look at this redemption that happens in our lives with kind of a magnifying glass. And forgive me for oversimplifying verses 1 through 10, but Paul shows us how we as individuals look at God's into the family of God. And in our text this morning, Paul is going to zoom out a little bit and look at God's redemption of a people. And more specifically, Paul is addressing the Gentiles and how the Gentiles are brought into the family of God. So in verse, uh, in verse 11 and 12, there's this kind of confusing language about circumcision and uncircumcision. And now is not the time to go into the anatomical procedure behind those terms. Uh, but Paul is using those terms to show that in the world, either you're Jewish or you're not. Either you were a Jewish person who was a part of the circumcision covenant people of God, or you weren't. Either you have hope or you don't have hope. Either you have God or you don't have God. There is no neutral ground in this text. There is no gray area. 
And that's actually an important distinction to make because with God, all people are equal before him, but no one is neutral. So growing up, my dad uh, would take my brothers and I to get ice cream at McDonald's or whatever it was. And after we'd get it, he would look at us and say, boys, there's two types of people in this world. There are those who got ice cream tonight, and then there are those who didn't. Or in an attempt to like make us jealous nowadays, he'll go out and play golf while we were all working because he's retired and he'll look at us and go, hey, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who played golf today and those who didn't. Yeah, duh, of course. That's, yeah, that's... Growing up, though, I used to believe that I was missing out on this elite club because my dad would be like, there's two types of people in this world. Those who eat Big Macs and those who don't. I'm like, I want to be a part of that club. Let me be a part of the Big Mac club. Um, but my, my dad always did it with kind of these ridiculous or fun scenarios. And uh, in our text this morning, it is totally not ridiculous, but it is still the similar type of thought. Paul is showing us that there are two types of people in the world. You are either a Jew or you weren't. You are either somebody who had God or you don't. There is no neutral standing with the Lord. So that means that either you are in Christ or you're not in Christ. So here's a little illustration to kind of help us wrap our minds around this. So there's an American National Bank right next to our offices, and let's say that we wanted to uh, go open up a checking account over there. So we walk in, and uh, we're going to open up the account. We go to the teller. Hey, this is my information, all this sort of stuff. And you and me, we're standing there together, and both of our accounts are opened up. And both of those accounts then say zero dollars until we put money into them, correct? But you and I are both equal and we both start from the same neutral playing field. The dollar amount of our checking account is zero until we put something in it or we take something out of it. So if we want to be rich, Then we work hard and we pump our paychecks into these accounts and limit how much we spend and save up. And that is then how we kind of view our relationship with God, that we all are equal, that we all start off with a pretty much a zero balance. And as long as you do enough good and outweigh your bad, then you'll be fine and God will kind of cover up the rest. But that way of thinking actually flies in the face of what this passage and this whole book of Ephesians is actually communicating to us apart from Christ. Yes, indeed, we are all equal before God, but we do not start with zero in our bank account. We are all equal, but we are not neutral with God. Being born into a sinful world and being sinners ourselves means that We come into this story, we come into this world with a negative balance, and we cannot even make enough money to pay the interest. Verse 12 says that we are without hope and without God, which means that we are not neutral. Then hopeless, and we are equally godless. We are not neutral. And these few verses show us that the only commonality that we have then before God is that we are not God's people as Gentiles. And let us not confuse that 
equality as Gentiles with neutrality. We're not in neutral standing with God. And you might object to that notion that, no, I am neutral before God. But in verse 13, we actually get the only objection that is allowed in the kingdom of God. The only objection that is allowed is that you've been covered by the blood of Christ. And so we are all equally in need of peace with God, but we are not people that can achieve it. We are all equally deserving of wrath, not neutrally deserving of grace. And so providence, if there's no neutral people before God, then that means that there are only two types of people before the Lord. There are those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. The past few weeks have made it abundantly clear to us that as sinners, we were far off and hostile towards God, not a part of his people. And that is a heavy and terrible reality. And I know that. That weighs on our souls. But that's not where Paul leaves us. He does not leave us in verse 12. He keeps going. Let me read verse 13. Look at it with me. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is incredible news. Providence, our only hope and peace is the precious blood of Christ. And there is no other way by which we can have hope and peace. We were once far off from God and through the blood of Christ have been brought near. In other words, not only is our debt forgiven, but we have then been credited with the righteousness of Christ. Providence, you have a debt you can't pay. You can't even make a dent in the interest payments on that debt. But if you've trusted in the blood of Jesus, your account is no longer negative. But get this, it's not even back to zero dollars because there is no neutral ground with God. We are credited the account of Jesus himself. Are you tracking with me? This is good news. Can somebody give me an amen? Our God is so good to forgive us our debt, but then to go further and actually credit us his righteousness? Are you kidding me? That is amazing. Does that get anybody fired up, or is that just me who gets fired up? All right, well, good. Maybe 11 o'clock would be a little more awake. But Here's where this truth lands for us today. How would you respond to somebody asking you the question, why should God forgive you? How would you respond to that? And if we went around the room and had everyone respond, I'm sure we would uh, get a whole host of answers. But your answer to that question actually reveals something very, very important about who you are. Your answer to why God should forgive you reveals what you believe will bring you peace and salvation. And so I know college students, and so in the college world, most of the answers that I get to that question are something along these lines. I try to be a good person. Or I try to be who God wants me to be. 
And what they're essentially saying is, yeah, I tried to make more spiritual money in my spiritual checking account than I spend. Which reveals that they don't actually realize that they're not even making the interest payments on their debt. And Providence, let me just say this. If if your answer is anything other than the blood of Christ, then according to this passage, you remain a hostile enemy of God. You are not on neutral ground with the Lord. God is not your God, and you are not his people. And you have no hope. Because of that reality, you are equally then in need of the blood of Jesus with the rest of us Gentiles in the room. But if your response is the blood of Christ, then this passage is actually phenomenal news to us. And it should move us towards gratitude and towards humility because we were not a neutral bunch of people when God saved us through the blood of Christ. Yet God has brought us near by his blood. How then can we not be moved to this place of gratitude for what God has done? Furthermore, that profound truth moves us into this place of deep humility because God has made one of his enemies one of his own children, and we did not deserve that. This life should produce in us this profound humility before the Lord. So the first aspect of this passage this morning is equality, not neutrality. We're all equally in need of peace with God, but none of us are neutral before him. And so let's continue to see what else Paul has for us this morning. Let's read verses 14 through 18. It says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So these verses detail how Christ brought peace to not only the Gentiles, but also to the Jewish people, which is where we get our second point, one, not two. Christ has made both the Jewish people and the Gentiles one in himself. And this is massive, absolutely massive, because before Christ, the only people who had access to God on the planet were the Jews, But Christ has broken down the wall that separated the Jewish people from the Gentiles, which is everyone else. And now anyone who is in Christ has access to the Father in the Spirit through Christ. But in order for the magnitude of that to really hit our souls, I think it would actually be helpful for us to look at redemptive history. And uh, for any college students in the the building this morning, This is going to sound exactly like every Thursday night because in this current semester, our college students are going through the Old Testament narrative. So we picked up in uh, the life of Abraham, and we're going to continue the story of the Old Testament all the way through uh, the splitting of the two kingdoms, going off into exile, and then landing uh, with Jesus at the end of the semester. 
But throughout the semester, we've looked at how the patriarchs, so that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, interacted with the Lord, were called by him, were made holy by the Lord, and their lives show us the faithfulness of God to God's people and how God fulfills his promise to his people. And then we looked at Exodus and Moses and Joshua and where God establishes this covenant with his people. He's on top of a mountain and he says, you are my people, I'm going to make you mine and uh, I'm going to be your God. And in that, God's faithfulness shines through again. And during the life of Moses, God establishes this covenant so that his people, the Israelites, will be separate. They will be holy. And they will reflect the separate and holy nature of God to the rest of the world. And so God gave all these laws, all of these ordinances to follow so that the whole world would know and be able to see God's holiness. They were instructed to do certain things. They were instructed to uh, have this exclusive and wonderful relationship with the Lord. But then after the Exodus, so after Moses, after Joshua, they enter into the promised land and they have to drive out everybody that's living in there. And so God goes before them and Joshua's marching around Jericho and there's seven trumpet blasts and then all of a sudden the walls of Jericho fall and God shows that he is more powerful and that his people are more powerful than anybody in the world. But, per usual, Israel disobeys and they fall off the wagon and they start worshiping other gods and they forget all this stuff. So then God raises up these judges to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. And the book of Judges is actually to point us to this great deliverer that would come for the Jewish people in the Messiah. And then after Judges, we get to see, and it was this past week where uh, one of our auxiliary staff members, Scott, preached on the life of Saul and how Saul comes in and establishes a kingship for the Israelite people, which is really, really interesting because if Saul never happened, then Jesus never would have happened. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see King Solomon build this temple and put these walls up around the Israelites to keep people out and to keep the Jewish people holy. And then the kingdom gets split and they're carried off into exile and then it gets quiet for like 400 years. So there's 400 years of history where the Jewish people, God's chosen elect people have been brought into Egypt and then delivered out of Egypt, had a king set over them, God showing his faithfulness. Throughout the ages, there's 400 years of silence until a new prophet arrives in Israel. And it's actually John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the prophet that paved the way for the promised Messiah. So not only does God speak to his people, but he actually then sends himself, because Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, comes as the promised Messiah. The promised one that is promised all the way back in the book of Genesis has finally come onto the scene. He's going to be the greater Moses, who is the covenant keeper and the great mediator. Jesus is the one who will conquer the lands before his people and deliver his people from their enemies like the judges of old. And then he will rule and reign over his people in justice, mercy, and grace. God's people can now rejoice because the Messiah has arrived. 
Now that's all great news, but for the last like three, four, five minutes, what I've been describing to you has legitimately nothing to do with you because we're Gentiles. That was all for Jewish people. And that's the wrench in the system. Only the Jewish people were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were not God's chosen people. So us here in America, we're not a part of the ethnic line of Israel. So the covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai does not transfer through the lineage until it meets us here in America. That's not good on our behalf. Because God actually like put a wall around his people in Jerusalem. And that you had to go into Jerusalem in order to worship him and have a relationship with him. And then the temple, when it was constructed, there was a legitimate wall that was put up to keep specifically Gentile people out of the presence of God. And so to even consider having Jewish people being one with the Gentiles flies in thousands of years of redemptive history. The people that once persecuted God's chosen ones being brought in as one with God's people. That's incredible. It would be like the entire Iowa Hawkeye fan base becoming Husker fans. And actually, that's not even scandalous enough. It would be like all of the Husker fans all over the world then becoming Hawkeye fans. That's how scandalous this idea is that two have been made one. That the Gentiles have been brought together with the Jewish people to become one in Christ. And maybe Husker fans being Iowa fans is not that important to you. And maybe you're still stuck in the Big 12 days. This would be like Husker fans becoming Oklahoma and Texas fans. That's not good. Or maybe you're still stuck in the 90s with Husker football. This would be like you forsaking the, 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 the Huskers and becoming a Miami Hurricane fan. Does anybody get that reference? Anybody from the 90s here? Okay. But here's where college football actually falls short for an illustration. It's not that the Gentiles just became Jewish and then shared in the hope of the Jews. And it isn't even that God got so frustrated with the Jewish people that he went to plan B and just started saving Gentiles. God bringing salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike through the blood of Christ is the climax of God's redemptive plan. It was always his plan, and it will always be his plan. Both Jews and Gentiles are equally in need of Christ and are united as one only in Christ. And here's where this lands for us today, Providence. In Christ then there is no hierarchy of people groups. America is not God's chosen people, nor are the Jews actually God's chosen people. God's people are exclusively those who are found in Christ, in Christ alone. 
Look at verse 14 and 15 and, and a little bit into 16. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then in the last half of verse 15, he says, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And then verse 16, it says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is no other way that anyone can enter into peace with God. It is through Christ, and it is through Christ alone. And the only reason is because Christ has killed hostility itself. And so what that means for us today is that there is no favorite denomination that exists in God's people. There's no favorite ethnic group in God's people. There's no favorite congregation in God's people. There are only those who have been united in one spirit to the Father equally in Christ. That means that there's no room, no room for hostility amongst God's people. And I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers to how to end this hostility, the, the racism or any sort of ethnic elitism, but this I do know. There is no room for racism in the kingdom of God. Therefore, there is no room for racism in his church. We cannot say that we love God yet remain hostile towards our brothers and sisters. There is no room for us and them in the kingdom of God. There is only room for those who have been made one in Christ. So if we are to put an end to the ethnic and racial divide in our country and in our world, or an end to any other form of division that exists amongst ourselves, we as the church must first recognize that we have been united in Christ and then let his spirit reflect that reality in the world. To do anything other than that is to bring back to life the hostility that Jesus himself killed. So can you imagine then, Providence, what it would be like for us as a church, not as a group of individuals, but us as a church, to, you, to be united in Christ and to champion that truth in our city. Can you imagine what our city would look like if we lived as a church where the dividing wall of hostility has truly been broken down? Imagine a church united in one spirit through the blood of Jesus, living out and advocating for unity in the city. I don't have one specific event for us to all rally behind because I think this truth actually plays itself out in, a, in multiple ways in our lives. So instead of a specific application of this, can we be a church that remembers then what God has done before us? And then what God has done for us. And then put our yes on the table and allow him to move us in directions where he wants us to unite. Instead of achieving a singular event, let us begin by taking steps towards one another, towards Christ. 
So this morning, I want to challenge us to put our yes on the table, not necessarily as individuals, but our yes on the table as Providence Church for wherever God would call us. And as a first step towards that unity, uh, we actually have a really, really great opportunity to actually demonstrate that to one another. And so I want to actually invite the band back up and I want to invite the communion servers to come forward because this next step actually is taking communion with one another. As the bread then is broken, we remember that it is the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf. And this symbolizes the dividing wall of hostility being broken down in the flesh of Christ. Our passage says that through the broken body of Christ, it was in that moment that Christ killed the hostility. So let us remember that Christ's body was broken so that we may have peace. And as we dip the bread in the juice, we are remembering the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf to bring us near to God. Our passage says that those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So too, as we dip our bread into the juice, let us draw close to Christ and one another, remembering that it is the blood of Christ alone that has allowed us access to the Father. And finally, uh, communion is for those who are in Christ. And so if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus, I would ask that, or if you have not trusted in the blood of Jesus, I would ask that you would remain seated and reflect on the fact that the only way that you can have peace with God and true everlasting peace with one another is through Christ and Christ alone. But if you would like to respond for the first time in faith to this reality, I would invite you to join the church family, to join the host of Gentiles who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus and come and join uh, communion with us. And so just by way of instruction, when you are ready, please come to the middle aisles here and have, uh, take the bread, dip it into the juice, and then return to, uh, on the outside. And there's also a gluten-free option in the back. And so let me pray, and then come forward whenever you feel that. Uh, Father, thank you. That's all I can say is thank you that you have redeemed a rebellious people like ourselves, that you have shown us compassion, that you have brought us near through the blood of Christ, that you have united us as one in Christ. And so as we come forward, Lord, would it be symbolic of us as a church putting our yes on the table to wherever you would call us? Lord, would you uh, humble our hearts and allow us um, a space to just be able to hear you and hear what you would have for us? So Lord, us as Providence Church, as your, uh, as your congregation here, Lord, lead us, we beg you. Lead us, guide us, show us what you would have for us. And um, Lord, would we champion your unity in one spirit in this city. Amen.